what types of engagement are good and what types of engagement are bad? I normally try to answer that question by thinking about uh, who is it producing value for and how is that value distributed? And it's very easy to make the argument that simply giving people more of what will capture their attention uh, is or can be bad for them. So I think as people started to realize that in the last you know, five to seven years, there uh, developed this critique around the term. And, and I agree with the critique. Uh, I just think that um, if you sort of take that critique to its, its logical conclusion, it's, well, you know, we shouldn't try to have engagement. Well, a, a platform with no engagement produces zero value. So that's not the answer. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 7th, 2022. Algorithms, we hear a lot about them. They drive social media platforms, and according to some popular understandings, are responsible for a great deal of what's wrong about the internet today, and maybe the downfall of democracy itself. But what exactly are algorithms? And given that they're not going away, what should they be designed to do? We're discussing that on today's episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Jonathan Stray, senior scientist at the Berkeley Center for Human Compatible AI, and someone who has thought a lot about what we mean when we say the word algorithm, and also when we discuss things like engagement on social media and amplification. He helped us pin down a more precise understanding of what those terms mean and why that precision is so important in crafting good technology policy. We also talked about what role social media algorithms do and don't play in stoking political polarization and how they might be designed to decrease polarization instead. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 7th. What we talk about when we talk about algorithms. So Jonathan, we are going to spend our time talking about recommendation algorithms, obviously, given that's what you study. But I think in order to get everyone sort of on the same page, we should start to get some definitions because I think the definitions in this area can be pretty slippery or misunderstood and, and that can result in people talking past each other. So let's start with what might be a stupid question, but does seem very important. Um, what is an algorithm? Oh, gosh, we're going to start there, huh? Okay, well... Um... You've all heard a definition like, you know, it's a series of steps to uh, achieve some result, more specifically, a series of steps run by a computer. But in this discussion, often what people are talking about when they say that is, you know, uh, Twitter used to be just a reverse chronological feed of the uh, posts from the people I follow. And now there is some uh, opaque or black box or sort of unexplainable system underneath that is deciding how to allocate my attention. So in this discussion, that's normally what people mean when they say, you know, what is the algorithm behind the platform? So another term that I think is worth nailing down and that you've done some work on is the idea of engagement. Um, and I think the, the sort of idea about social media now has often become that it optimizes for engagement rather than other values like productive debate or truth or diversity of opinions. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the question I think is, you know, what actually is engagement and, and how can it be measured? Because of course, there are a lot of different kinds of engagement, like how long someone spends on the site or how often they click on things or something like that. So how would you define it? Right. So engagement is this weird word that used to be this thing that only like, um, you know, UX designers and advertisers talked about. And it's somehow become the center of this mainstream controversy. Uh, which is super interesting. Um, 
so I've, I've spent some time with colleagues trying to sort of unpack this a little bit. And um, we sort of read all of the history of what this word means. And it, it uh, up until about five years ago, it was almost always mentioned as a positive thing. So, um, you know, people building products would say, well, uh, you know, if a product is engaging, it's more than merely usable. It's the, the user gets into sort of a, a flow state or has some sort of positive experience with this. And this was very much a goal if you read the like HCI literature from, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, advertisers want engagement because they want you to be, of course, excited about the thing that they're trying to sell you. Um, journalists began talking about engagement maybe 15 years ago when they began to realize that online media worked differently than uh, broadcast or print media, when uh, you always had the, the choice to go to a different source of information, the idea of having you not merely reading the article, but uh, engaged, being sort of active, um, became very important. And they started to talk about engagement as a two-way process as well. So in journalism, when they think about engagement, they think about not only are we you know, putting things out for the audience, but we're getting something back from them, um, hopefully something more than their interest, you know, um, their comments, their information, uh, maybe just sharing with other people and ultimately journalistic impact. So up until, you know, let's call it like 2015, 2016, um, this was a thing that everybody wanted. And then the discourse changed because people started talking about the um, harmful side effects of uh, recommender algorithms, which is probably a term we should define in a moment. And they said, well, you know, they're not really optimizing for what's good for us. They're optimizing for engagement. And what they meant was something like optimizing for clicks or optimizing for attention. And so in, in certain circles, there's been this shift in the discourse where engagement is bad. So um, I recently did a, a, a piece with um, uh, Pri Bengani and Luke Thorburn, uh, where we tried to just define engagement and talk about when is it good and when is it bad. And... Um, if this, this audience will uh, suffer through it, I'd like to actually read that definition and, and parse it out. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Please do. All right, so here we go. There's four parts. Engagement is a set of user behaviors generated in the normal course of interaction with the platform, which are thought to correlate with value to the user, the platform, or other stakeholders. So first part, it's a set of user behaviors, right? It's not what people are thinking or feeling um, or doing off the platform, it's, it's user behaviors on the platform, uh, generated a normal course of interaction with the platform. So we're not talking about like adjusting controls or taking survey. This is just like what you do every day when you're using the app, right? Uh, which are thought to correlate with value. Okay, this is why everybody uses engagement, um, because these signals, you know, a click isn't necessarily valuable in itself. Um, but it's thought to be a proxy for something that we care about, say, you know, um, subscribers. Uh, correlate with value to the user, the platform, or other stakeholders. Uh, it's a, this engagement is a multi-stakeholder construct. Uh, it, it's inherently a social thing where multiple people have interests. So a simple example of that is on, um, on YouTube. Um, obviously, you want to recommend the videos that uh, users are going to like in some sense. But you also need to give enough attention to a wide enough variety of creators that it's worth it to them to stay on the platform. So there you go. There's my, my four-barreled definition. Can I pause on that last element, though? Because it seems very broad. When you say user platform or other stakeholders, mm -hmm. um, 
that strikes me as almost everything. And that the, that, you know, if you could give me an example of something that would fall outside that category, it also strikes me that they might be in conflict sometimes. So, yeah. you know, what, what is a value to the platform? And I guess this is actually um, the debate that comes up, right? Is that people think that platforms are, or the, the trope is that platforms are optimizing for their engagement to the extent that it produces value for them, namely through advertising and attention. But that is uh, at odds with the value of engagement for democracy or politicians or users themselves who don't want to spend uh, all of this time on platforms, uh, even if they actually do. Right, exactly. Okay, so you can you can attack the use of engagement uh, along any of these axes. So let's start with the, you know, value to whom and um, ideally value to to everyone involved, right? So um, uh, platforms are many of them are a two sided market which means that they have to keep both the creators and the consumers happy. Um, so Spotify is another excellent example of this. So they um, have published some papers talking about a diversity metric that they use. And they say that a playlist or a stream is diverse to the extent that it contains songs from different tiers of popularity. So they're interested in making sure you're exposed to less popular songs. Now, why do they do that? They, there's There's actually several reasons. So one of them is a sort of like, musical exploration thing, right? They would like your experience to be something other than the top 40. Um, but another one is the fact that they have to please the artists and uh, cultural markets generally um, tend to suffer from an effect called superstar economics, where a small number of creators capture almost all of the attention. So um, that might be great if you're a star, but it's not great if you're not a star. And so most uh, platforms that are two-sided markets in this way have some sort of distribution uh, or sort of smoothing of the attention built in. And this is how Spotify does it. So that's that's value to, um, to the consumers and the producers when they get this right. Now, obviously, Spotify also has to capture some of that value for itself or it ceases to exist. And that is true whether you're... Um, uh, this is one of the, the things that I think often gets lost in this discussion. Uh, it's not the business model. It doesn't matter whether you're ad supported, you are supported by subscribers, or you are a nonprofit, or you are government supported. You have to uh, capture, um, uh, or so you have to produce value for somebody. You have to produce engagement. Um, otherwise, your funding dries up. Right? Either you have no subscribers, or you know your your funder says, "Well, nobody listens to your podcast. Why would I fund this?" Or even the BBC um, is continually under pressure uh, to show that people actually watch their shows. So I, I actually think that the, um, you know, it's the business model stupid uh, diagnosis is, is misguided. I don't think that's what's happening here. I want to go back to something you said before about how before maybe five or six years ago, engagement was a good thing and people that, you know, not only in social media platforms, but in in other walks of life, including journalists, were, were chasing why and how is it, in your view, that engagement and, you know, the algorithm became dirty words? Because I think that's been a really interesting kind of cultural shift to watch. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. One of the analogies I draw is between engagement and profit, right? So ideally, uh, a company is profitable because it is producing something that is valuable to its consumers and, um, you know, obviously valuable to itself, right? But we know that there's a lot of dishonest or unethical or harmful ways to make money. So profit has got this similar sort of double valence, 
it is something that every company uh, chases. It's something that is taught in business schools, um, you know, almost obsessively, you know, how do we make a profitable company? Um, and at the same time, it is this term that is at the center of this huge history of critique going back hundreds of years saying, no, 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 you, you know, optimizing for profit is, is not it. So, uh, you know, when is profit good and when is profit bad is, is sort of ends up being the question, right? And you get a very similar question about engagement. What types of engagement are good and what types of engagement are bad? And I normally try to answer that question by thinking about uh, who is it producing value for and how is that value distributed? And uh, it's, I, it's very easy and very true to make the argument that uh, simply giving people more of what will capture their attention uh, is, is or can be bad for them. So I think as people started to realize that in uh, you know, the last you know, five to seven years, there uh, developed this critique around the term. And, and I agree with the critique. Uh, I just think that um, if you sort of take that critique to its, its logical conclusion, it's, well, you know, we shouldn't try to have engagement. Well, a, a platform with no engagement produces zero value. So that's not the answer either. I think the question is, when is engagement aligned with the uh, values of various stakeholders and when is it not? Yeah, so in response to the kind of it's the business model stupid idea, um, I guess platforms might say or have said something along the lines of like, uh, this is what people want, stupid. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the blog post that Nick Clegg, the uh, president of global affairs at Meta wrote um, that caused a bit of an uproar. Uh, it's hard to summarize 5,000 words, but I think the title gives a good idea of the gist of his argument, which is you and the algorithm, it takes two to tango. Mm -hmm. um, he gives this weird analogy of a couple making dinner and one person goes out to the supermarket and picks the ingredients and then they bring it home and their uh, partner cooks something from those ingredients they don't get to the, the first person doesn't get to choose but it's obviously only including the things uh, that they picked out and they wanted you know that strikes me as a bit of a dysfunctional way for a couple to choose to fix dinner but you know that's that's a setting that aside um, you know I think the thrust of his point is clear that algorithms give you what you want you do select the uh, elements as you're clicking around the site, as you're uh, revealing your preferences. Um, and so this is not, you know, social media platforms manipulating people, but it's responding to their desires. What did you make of that post and sort of the subsequent debate and, and backlash against it? Right, right. Gosh, well, um, I think there were a lot of interesting elements in there. And um, just from a sort of politics point of view, he was exactly the wrong person to make those arguments. It's weird that they roll him out to make I, I mean, he, he is sort of Facebook's punching bag, but I don't know exactly why they think uh, he is the best spokesman for anything, really. But but there you go. Yeah. So let's see. What can we say about that? Um, as you said, it's 5,000 words. So he says a lot of things. So I think there's sort of like, there's sort of a, a truth and an evasion in, in that line of argument, right? So the, the truth is that um, uh, the output of large algorithmic systems are a combination of the algorithm and the user behavior and also the, the operators of the platform, right, who are, are constantly tweaking things. So it is, it's an emergent system. Um, and uh, Dean Eccles at MIT has talked about this and makes, makes this point very, very eloquently, um, actually in his um, Senate testimony, which is, um, there's a written version of it, which is really good. Um, I don't know if you do links, but it's one of my favorite. Um, 
anyway, so it, it, the, he's got this diagram, which is sort of a feedback loop between the uh, content presented to the user, the content that the user clicks, and the signals back to the content creators. So um, if you change the algorithm or the users change their interests, that changes the incentives for what is produced. Um, uh, and in turn, what is shown. So you, there really is this, this sense of sort of um, this complicated interacting system. And we know from published research that when you change a, a platform, when you change what people are shown, it takes somewhere in the range of three to six months for people's behavior to change and get back into an equilibrium, uh, which may not be the equilibrium you wanted, right? So like a very simple example is that, you know, you may decide that, um, you want people to be nicer to each other. So you downrank comments where people fight. Well, uh, what may happen if people really want to fight is they may um, start fighting through another channel through, you know, instant messenger or by like, you know, subtweeting each other, right? So you, you don't necessarily get to control the dynamics of the platform just by changing the algorithm. So I think, I think that part is true. And there, one of the implications of that is uh, we can't necessarily fix democracy by fixing social media, if only it was that easy. But I honestly don't think they have that large an effect. I think they could be part of the solution. I think um, on balance, they're probably contributing to the problem and we should fix that. But, you know, if only we could change society through code, that would be amazing. Uh, where I think Clegg is being a little deceptive is that uh, there's now substantial research that... Um, suggests that there are problems with um, how these algorithms are built and the, the goals and metrics that are used to manage them. Uh, so uh, that, I think, uh, is the conversation we should be happen having, right? So if, if, we're not, if we don't think that optimizing for engagement is the right thing, then what is it that we should be optimizing for? And he invokes this sort of um, revealed preference arguments. I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with this strain of thinking. Um, and this is another thing that I've written about recently. Um, Revealed Preferences says that you can tell what people want by looking at the choices they make. And the problem with that argument is it's just not true. There's all kinds of reasons that people make choices that are not reflective of their, their true desires and motivations and needs. Uh, so for example, they could be misinformed. They could be coerced. They may not be able to afford the thing that they really want. Um, uh, they may um, misunderstand what the outcome is going to be. They mis may, may mispredict their own future happiness. Um, so that argument um, that you can determine what people want based on what they select um, is just false. And um, that is why I've bracketed engagement as a set of behaviors, because I want to say, well, as long as you're using only behaviors, uh, you're always going to miss something. So we need some other source of information about what the actual effects of these platforms on people are. Okay, so there's this question then of optimizing for different things. And you've written that, you know, no real platform optimizes solely for engagement, that that's a pretty reductive perception of how platforms work. Um, and so I'm curious for you to talk a little bit more about the other kinds of signals um, that they take into account. And also, you know, how different platforms might be different in this respect. I presume that there's not some monolith where Silicon Valley gets together and says, this is the value that we should all, you know, pursue. Um, but then, you know, what causes those differences between different platforms? Is it just, you know, different bets on the business model? Or how, how do different companies think about that? 
Always asking the easy questions. Okay, well, I mean, I can I can tell you uh, what I know, which is um, there's a few other categories of things that platforms optimize for other than engagement. So um, one of them is what has come to be called integrity metrics. So this is you know your your misinformation, hate speech, criminal activity, um, you know, sexual material. There's this really long list of things um, which I'm sure your listeners are super familiar with at this point. So um, some of those things, there are um, triage systems which um, just you know outright remove anything that seems suspicious. Like some of that stuff is just not supposed to be available for recommendation. Full stop. But some of it's fuzzier. So some of it like um, you know, news source credibility. So for example, Facebook does this survey, which asks, you know, uh, shows you a, a, a URL and says, you know, A, have you heard of this source? B, do you trust it? And there's some external research that this actually correlates pretty well with other measures of news trust. Like crowdsourcing um, source trust is actually, you know, a better idea than it, than it might sound. So that gives you a sort of very approximate, um, you know, is this item credible kind of signal? And you don't, want to make that uh, a hard or binary signal because you don't want to just sort of completely exclude sources that are, you know, below, uh, let's say, 50% trusted, right? Maybe maybe they're really good on certain types of topics. So instead, it becomes a sort of weight or score. And you sort of, you know, you downrank things a little bit if their credibility signal isn't looking so hot. So there's this whole set of sort of soft integrity metrics. Um, and then another source that platforms use are um, survey data. So this appears in a variety of ways, right? So um, basically every platform does a sort of user satisfaction survey. Um, Twitter has experimented with surveys like, um, you know, do you remember this conversation? Did you find it um, informative? Uh, Facebook does a survey called Worth Your Time. Um, YouTube does this survey where they actually ask you, you know, did you find this video, um, you know, informative, uh, life-changing? Uh, inspirational, um, boring, right? They've got this sort of really funny set of categories. I don't know how many videos on YouTube are life-changing. I don't think I've ever experienced a life-changing YouTube video, but one hopes. So they do these surveys and then they use them in a couple ways. One is in A-B tests. So they'll make a change to the algorithm. They will get the survey data from the baseline and the uh, modified um, group. And they'll say, oh, okay, well, this change, you know, makes people more likely to say that they think that the things we're recommending are worth their time. The other thing that is happening, which is really interesting, is that uh, many companies use the survey data to build models of how people would answer the survey, which sounds kind of crazy. But if you think about it, it's not really a different problem than predicting whether somebody is going to click a like button. Right, like a survey is just a bunch of buttons you can click, and so you're trying to predict which button they click. And my understanding is that these models are not that great. I mean, it's a hard thing to predict. So the correlation with actual survey results might be like you know r squared equals 0.2, which um, you know if you're not down that rabbit hole is like you know pretty bad, like better than a coin flip, but not that much better than a coin flip. Um, even so, you can extract useful information from such a model, right? Sort of one, call it one bit of data. In particular, that model might tell you whether you should expect that this change will uh, make a certain metric, survey metric better or worse. So these models are, are actually being, being used to sort of run pseudo A-B tests, uh, and they're also increasingly being used in the core ranker. Um, and there's a YouTube paper from 2019 where you can actually see this. They, they actually say that 
one of the, the ranking signals they use is they try to predict how someone would rate that recommendation from the survey that um, I talked about a moment ago. And if some, if they think someone would rate it higher, that gets uh, becomes part of the scoring process in much the same way that imagining that someone would click on something. So I think surveys are very interesting because they are, uh, by my definition anyway, not engagement. They're not behavioral data generated in the normal course of the platform. You are uh, getting information some other way. And, and of course, this is the way out of the, the sort of tangle of revealed preferences. If you can't figure out what people actually want just by watching what they do, then maybe you should ask them. And that's the intuition there. So this may be a bit of a silly question, but how many people actually fill out those surveys? Because I will say I have definitely gotten that, you know, did, did you find this video valuable? Did you find this conversation valuable question? And I personally, uh, I never answer those. So apologies to the social scientists. Um, you know, do we have a sense of who is answering those questions? Like what that looks like? Um, and, and I guess that gets to a, a broader question of how reliable, or do we have a sense of how reliable the data is that these platforms are building these models from? Yeah, no, great questions. You know, now we're really getting into the weeds of, of you know, what is a survey and what can it tell you? Um, so only a small fraction of people will ever see a survey. In fact, I'm given to understand that um, platforms have a survey budget. They say, you know, we're going to bother each person no more than once every six months. And so actually internally, there's management where teams compete to ask questions. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. Um, the one of the primary challenges with survey data is it's extremely sparse. So, you know, I did a back of the envelope calculation um, at one point, which suggested that on a typical platform, survey data is 10 million times uh, more scarce than engagement data. And this is why everybody uses engagement data. It's because it's the only thing that's cheap and plentiful. And it, you know, if you sort of squint at it just right, it actually does show genuine user value, at, you know, at least sometimes. So that's that's sort of the first problem with surveys is this sparsity problem. The the next question is, you know, are people honest and you know, do we have selection bias? Um, you can you can kind of work around the selection bias problems. Uh, that is, you know, people self-selecting are all of a particular demographic or whatever. Um, because if you're the platform, you have to some degree those demographics. So you can you can do sort of rebalancing tricks. Um, and yeah, I mean, people can lie on surveys. Um, you know, best practice is to do um, qualitative testing um, beforehand to make sure that people at least understand uh, what they're being asked. There's manipulation checks. There's attention checks. There's a whole, you know, uh, science of doing of doing surveys. So that will probably work. What I'd like to do, introduce into the discussion is the idea of paying people for survey data. Now, this happens, but it's not super common. Um, you know, you weren't you weren't offered money for filling out those surveys. But it's kind of interesting that in search, it is long established that you know Google and Bing and all of these people they pay tens of thousands of search raters. They give them this you know hundred page document and they say this is how to evaluate search results. And you know, uh, you know, a certain certain uh, fee for you know every every A B uh, search result that they rate, but we don't really do this for uh, ranking or for surveys. So I think one of the most interesting directions here is well, if you want to solve the sparsity and quality issues with survey data, and that's what you need to drive rankings and ensure that engagement is aligned with the things that you actually care about, 
then maybe you should just pay for that information. So I, I'm, I'm trying to get the industry to move in that direction. Okay, so a lot of this conversation has centered around user preferences and trying to find, you know, better proxies for that. Um, but another view might be, well, let's not pursue user preferences. Let's pursue some other um, value. Uh, and you've written about designing recommendation systems to depolarize. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious for you to talk a little bit about that and what kind of tools might be available to do that. Right, yeah. So um, a lot of my work uh, focuses on the intersection of AI and conflict, uh, which I feel is tremendously underexplored. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you're a, an existential risk fan, I would point out that, you know, uh, war can be an existential risk. Um, but there's not really a lot of work at this, this intersection, except for this idea that, you know, platforms are polarizing us, they're, they're sort of tearing us apart. Um, so that is a complicated statement, right? What's polarization? How, you know, which platform, under what circumstances, how do we measure this effect? And I, I'm not really going to try to summarize the state of that debate. I think there's, there's two recent articles in The Atlantic that sort of do a good job pre presenting the sort of pro and, and con sides of that. Um, let's say that the evidence is mixed. There are certainly contexts in which um, usage of recommender-driven platforms seem to increase um, certain measures of polarization that we think are important. So let's just sort of bracket that argument and say that at least sometimes it does matter. So having done that, then the question is, okay, well, how do we change these algorithms? So broadly speaking, um, the types of solutions that have been proposed are diversification. The idea is that you shouldn't just see uh, arguments or information from one side where the sides are defined relative to whatever the local context is, right? So that's, there's very obviously sort of a left versus right thing going on in, in the U.S., in other parts of the world, you know, those divisions have different names and different histories. But usually there's sort of an in-group, out-group thing. Okay, so that was the, the sort of filter bubble hypothesis, the sort of echo chamber. There's been a lot of ways to, to talk about that. But the problem is um, that jumps to the solution without testing it in an ecologically valid way. And when you um, expose people to counter ideological information, Sometimes it, it works in the sense of making them more empathetic, more understanding, improving the conflict dynamics, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it increases polarization. So we know this from um, really the psychological literature on intergroup contact going back 100 years, but also more recently from on-platform experiments. So uh, this is where you know, I keep sort of banging this drum and saying we need to bring uh, ideas and practices from from conflict dynamics and uh, peace building and conflict transformation and all of these professions which deal with conflict. And they could have told you that. In fact, they did tell us that. Um, uh, there was a very pithy remark at a conference I was at 10 years ago talking about this problem of online conflict dynamics. And, and this woman said, unmoderated chat polarizes. And that's it right there, right? You, you only get this depolarizing effect under certain specific conditions. Okay, so what are those conditions? Well, there's a bunch of research sort of going down there. Um, no one will be surprised to hear that um, civility or something like civility matters. Um, uh, you know, it sounds almost stupid, but when people are nicer, you're more likely to listen to them. Um, there's an exercise used in conflict work called uh, perspective taking, where you ask someone to take the perspective of the other. 
um, you know, there's, there's sort of a set of sort of standard psychological techniques. Um, you don't want to talk to the most extreme person on the other side. You want to talk to someone who's like, you know, uh, has, you know, a different opinion from you, but not too different. There's these types of things. Uh, and so these types of ideas from intergroup contact theory are starting to be applied to people who are thinking about the problem of online contact and social media. But I think we need to go a step further. I think that, um, I think there's two fundamental problems that this type of like designing a lab experiment sort of uh, line of, of work doesn't get to. Um, the first is that um, online platforms are very, very complicated ecosystems. And I really question the ecological validity of a lab experiment uh, and saying, okay, well, we did this experiment and now we're going to say that it applies across Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram. Oh, and also every country and every conflict in the world. Like that's just bonkers. That is not the case. Um, so you, the first thing is we're going to have to measure the outcomes that we're interested in on platform. Um, I've been, uh, like many scholars, interested in a set of measures called effective polarization, which is kind of like not do you disagree with that guy, but do you dislike him? And um, there's been a bunch of scholarship that has been looking at the rise of effective polarization in the U.S. You know, for example, we're much less likely to uh, marry or hire uh, someone who has an opposite uh, political view than we are, uh, which is uh, really kind of sad because, of course, those uh, intergroup ties are exactly what uh, contributes to greater understanding. Um, there are other ways to measure polarization. There's a big literature on it. There are folks who say that effective polarization is not a good predictor of outcomes like violence or a democratic backsliding. Um, but let's just bracket that and say that there's some way that we can measure polarization that uh, is predictive for the bad outcomes that we care about. So if that's true, then what we should be doing is when we do our A-B tests, rather than saying, you know, was this post worth your time, we should say, you know, did you feel better or worse about um, your whatever your outgroup is uh, after this comment thread? Uh, do you feel that you understand them better after you read, you know, read this forum post? We should be looking at those sorts of things as A-B metrics. And then there's another level, which is the algorithmic level, right? So my, my model of how you um, tune a platform for social outcomes goes policy, then operations, which is the sort of management and A-B test level, then algorithm. And so now we're talking about the algorithmic level. And uh, there, as, as uh, many scholars have pointed out, it may be necessary to incorporate uh, measures of polarization as a ranking signal, signal in the algorithm itself to pre prevent uh, runaway optimization um, that polarizes. In other words, something has to prevent the algorithm from discovering, oh, hey, if I show you inflammatory articles, uh, you will spend more time reading them. There has to be a counterbalancing signal at the algorithmic level. And the way you could attempt to do that, or one way you could attempt to do that, is very much um, how I talked about, um, you know, how these platforms are using survey proxy models. Sort of the same idea, right? You try to build a model that predicts, if I show you this comment thread, what will you say on a survey asking you about a polarization measure? And it's going to be a pretty bad predictor, but it's probably enough to, um, as we would say in computer science, to regularize the process, to sort of prevent it from drifting off in extreme directions. 
So that's fascinating, and there's an enormous amount to to dig into. Um, before before we go further, though, I do want to sort of raise what I think is the counter argument that I've heard increasingly often when we talk about polarization. And the main person I think uh, who who's made this argument, among others, is Daniel Kreis at UNC, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially making the argument that you know talking about polarization in a kind of a content neutral sense ignores the very important question of who is polarized against who and what people are polarized over. So in Kreis's argument, you know, the United States right now, polarization includes a sharp disagreement along party lines over things like, is democracy good? Or, you know, are are non-white people equal citizens? So with that in mind, playing devil's advocate a little, should we be designing recommendation systems to depolarize if polarization is over core values? Uh, we are really getting to the good stuff here. Okay, I'm glad you brought this up. So now we're having a conversation that is, is really nothing to do with algorithms, um, but of course, everything to do with what we want our algorithms to do. So let's let's dig in here. Yeah. So um, sometimes fighting is necessary, right? Um, this is the concept of a just war, and people have been arguing about when fighting is necessary for you know since the beginning of civilization. So I think that's the sort of core insight of um, you know the the argument against trying to, to depolarize. So there is this tension. Um, uh, there is a tension between peace and justice. Um, is the sort of most general way I would put it. And you can see this in a lot of different ways. So one of the classic uh, ways this plays out is, um, you know, say, say there's a, um, a, an authoritarian regime, which for the sake of argument we'll say is, you know, unequivocally bad and, you know, it gets overthrown by a democratic regime. Okay, should the new regime prosecute uh, people of the old regime? Right. And, you know, so think about that for a minute. Right. So justice says, absolutely, we should make sure that they're held accountable, that they go to prison, that they're never involved in civilized society again. The peace argument says, no, that, you know, think of how many people that is. Are you, you know, are you going to do that to 10,000 civil servants? What about their families? You know, this is going to deepen a division that is going to last generations. You know, you can't just exclude um, thousands of people from civic life forever. So in many very in many contexts, there's this very real tension between the two, uh, and I am very partial to a um, a theory of conflict called conflict transformation, which has become uh, at this point I think the dominant paradigm in international peace building work over the last two or three decades. So, uh, not conflict resolution. Conflict resolution says we are going to end this conflict because we don't like conflict. We think conflict is bad. Um, and in many ways, conflict is bad, right? When you start to talk about, you know, physical violence against people's bodies, that is an outcome we would really, really like to avoid, right? That you get intergenerational trauma, trauma like that's, it's, it's a bad deal and you want to stop that. But you don't want authoritarian pacification. If you apply enough force and put enough police on the ground, you can make people stop fighting. But that's not a free and just society. So instead, conflict transformation starts from a different place. It says conflict is normal. It is a normal part of human interactions. It's a normal part of how societies change for the better. What we would like is good conflict, not bad conflict. And then you start to ask the question, well, what does good conflict look like? How can we tell it apart from bad conflict? Um, And to provide some intuition about what that question is getting at, think about the arguments you've had, maybe with someone close to you. Sometimes they uh, got ugly, right? You said some things you didn't mean, feelings were hurt, you caused damage that you're going to have to repair later. You know, it, it really went to that ugly place. And sometimes, instead, 
it was hard. You heard some truths that were really hard to bear, but you know, they were true and it's better that, you know, and you better that you understand people and you can move on from a place of, of understanding and empathy. Right. So that's sort of on a personal level, the, the intuition between good and bad conflict. And, um, I'll, I'll throw in a, a pitch here. I actually uh, edit a weekly newsletter called the Better Conflict Bulletin, which is all about coverage of the American domestic political conflict, not from the sense of what just happened, but from the sense of what is the most productive response to what just happened? How can we have a better fight? And, and that's, I think, the question we need to push on when we think about the design of our platforms. Yeah, I mean, I think the the points you make about thinking about conflict resolution as a field in context of this are are particularly interesting right now because I will say, you know, wearing my other hat where I write about uh, sort of the post-Trump era in the Justice Department, we're seeing a lot of debate about do we want uh, prosecution of the former president or and what dangers does that create and what dangers does it create if we're not in that circumstance? So I, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, but it does occur to me that, you know, often when we, we talk about fields like conflict resolution and conflict studies, those are seen as kind of very different from the political environment in the United States. But unfortunately, right now, they're uh, extremely apropos and applying them to social media seems like uh, only one way in which that's the case. Yeah, uh, there is a sort of a, a pretty significant movement of folks with international experience in conflict zones. And when I say conflict zone, I mean, I mean, war, right? I mean, violent conflict, um, who are moving back to look at the U.S. domestic con- uh, conflict, uh, which I would characterize as a, as a largely pre-violent conflict, right? But there's, we're really starting to transpose theories about um, how do you deal with societies who are uh, fighting uh, a kinetic war, um, you know, sort of ideas of what we've learned about conflict and the intractability and, and you know, how, how all of that stuff plays out. And we're bringing it back now to societies that are experiencing democratic backsliding. Um, and part of the reason for that is there's a, there's a growing body of work. There's a group of scholars who are, they're actually comparative political scientists, which means that they study politics by looking across different countries. Um, and so Jennifer McCoy is one of the big names here. And they've, they have started to put this uh, together, this theory of pernicious polarization. So this is like, when is polarization bad, right? So, or, you know, more bluntly, bad conflict. This is the bad kind of conflict. And um, uh, one of the things they see um, is that uh, periods of high polarization precede episodes of democratic backsliding when you look across countries and across time. So... Uh, and then, you know, with some sort of further work on this, they, they are making an argument that it's causal, that actually polarization leads to authoritarianism and other types of democratic erosion. And so that, I think, is an argument for focusing on uh, polarization suitably defined as a variable that we want to manage and not simply a system, symptom of something deeper. But I mean, you know, Daniel Price and, and, and sort of people making that point are, are correct, right? What, what we want is peace and justice, and then they are going to be in tension. And as happens so often on this show, you can't have everything that you want. There are different equities and different rights, and they're, they're very important. And so you have to choose a path that tries to respect all of the things that we care about as much as we can. So I think maybe the reason why this hasn't got 
a lot of attention um, or hasn't been the priorities. It all sounds quite scary or charged in terms of asking platforms to design their systems to pursue these kinds of things. Like if they don't want to be arbiters of truth, do they really want to be arbiters of, you know, justice or peace? And, you know, do we really want them to? Um, which, you know, the answer may be yes, like, it, uh, but it, you can understand why there's been a inclination to want to steer clear of that and you know this is where the the sort of idea of content neutral interventions comes up a lot more rather than sort of content-based or values-based um uh, interventions and of course that's you know a little bit of a red herring because nothing can be purely neutral and there is no neutral um but you know there is some sort of attractiveness to the idea that platforms you know if part of the problem is the dynamics of the platforms that they create um then you know instead of looking at the particular content in question uh you can look at the various behaviors around it or the various sort of um dynamics that that content is producing uh without looking at what exactly it says and so there are a number of sort of uh interventions that you can think of along these lines. I think maybe one of the most popular or well-known ones is the idea of like a circuit breaker, um, where once a post starts to go viral or gets lots of engagement, however you define that, uh, the circulation of that post is slowed or restricted in some ways. Uh, for example, it stops getting recommended into other people's feed and that the idea there would be that it's stopping the spread of inflammatory content and that might be good inflammatory content or it might be you know damaging inflammatory content but the idea being that if the uh the harmful dynamic here is the over emphasis on spreading you know uh inflammatory stuff very quickly um that overall on balance that would be a good intervention i'm curious what you think of the idea of content neutral uh interventions rather than any sort of like uh values-based ones D do you think they have promise and, and what kinds of things if yes what kinds of things should platforms be thinking about yeah really interesting yeah so i mean broadly speaking i agree that that content neutrality is is, is a bit of a myth um but uh i do think that procedural fairness is a coherent concept um, so, you know, we, it's not that the platform has no values or that, you know, code is law doesn't apply here. Um, but that people can expect to be treated in a certain way. And so I think that's a very, very promising idea, uh, uh, maybe sort of to get out of that. And that's why you see these sort of, you know, elaborate sets of public community standards documents and so forth. Um, in terms of circuit breakers specifically, I think, I think they're a very interesting idea. I think they're probably a good idea. Um, they're, you know, facially con content neutral. Um, I think they are probably essential to manage the sort of acute effects of conflict, right? So in particular, acts of violence, especially uh, politically motivated violence, are extremely polarizing. Um, and so you want to think carefully about how those are reported and distributed because uh, they create feedback cycles, right? This is one of the, the conflict dynamics is always about feedback cycles. And so you want to try to break that feedback cycles and dampen out the disturbances instead of having them amplified through a feedback in the system. And so that's where I think circuit graders can be really helpful. But to manage the sort of long-term effects of conflict, I think we're going to need something else. And, you know, there's a few ways you could try to design a content neutral version of that. So for example, you could look at um, changes in the structure of the social network. So uh, some ridiculous fraction of people um, have uh, 
you know, ended a relationship with a friend or a family member uh, because of politics since 2016. It's 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 something like 30 percent now. Right. Like, you know, if you don't believe X, um, unfollow me now. Right. This has become sort of part of our online world. So that is a destruction of the social fabric. And that's one of the reasons that conflict is so bad for society for society is, is because it destroys the bonds that allow us to uh, trust each other and to work together. So you could, for example, look at whether uh, when a particular type of content is posted or let's say conversations in a particular group, whether people break friend connections. So that could be uh, one way to, to try to do this in a content neutral way. But, you know, in the end, I think you're going, as you're really familiar with, I'm sure you, you there's, there's really no value free approach here. And I don't think we should be trying to find a value-free approach. I think we should put a, you know, a line in the in the sand and say, you know, yes, we actually do care about conflict dynamics in this way, and we care about both peace and justice. And um, here's how we're going to try to approach this problem. Uh, I think one key part of that, however, is um, the platform has to have a commitment to um, dignity and utility for people. Uh, across the political spectrum in a way that, for example, a news organization doesn't necessarily have to, right? Uh, Fox or MSNBC are free to chase partisan audiences. And it's probably good that partisan news outlets exist because they're going to cover a particular set of issues within a particular frame in a way that people care about and relate to. But somewhere there needs to be um, what is sometimes called consensus media. And so this gets back to the you can't fix society by fixing platform algorithms. It has to be a whole of society effort. And to, to really make this um, uh, pointed, uh, I will give the example that someone at a platform told me when I you know, started talking about, well, you know, maybe you should rank news articles higher if they are uh, liked by people across the political spectrum. This is an idea called uh, bridging-based ranking that uh, Aviva Vadya and others have, have written about. And he said, that's a great idea those articles aren't common enough to make a difference. So there's an inventory problem here, right? The platforms can't show people the material that might help transform the conflict to something more healthy because that material doesn't exist. It's not common enough, right? Uh, people are writing screeds about racism targeted at people who already think that racism is a problem, right? That, that's not gonna work. You need a different type of, con of content. And unfortunately, everybody in the media ecosystem from platforms to news organizations to politicians has an incentive to inflame the conflict because the easiest way to politically motivate people to get them engaged is to uh, make them afraid of what the other side might do if they don't. And, you know, there's this, there's this term in the conflict literature, which is conflict entrepreneur, which is actually a value neutral term. So I would say that um, people fighting for racial justice are conflict entrepreneurs. They are drawing a, upon a pre-existing political division to energize and activate people. Um, you could also say that like the sort of MAGA crowd are conflict entrepreneurs. They are drawing across a pre-existing division to activate people. The question of whether that's good or bad comes down to, well, first of all, do you think they're on the, the side of justice or not? But also, there's a feedback effect. When you activate a division, you motivate people, but you also make the division more salient um, and you make it worse. So there's a devil's bargain there. 
um, that uh, eventually um, political and media and platform actors are going to have to step out of and say, actually, we know that we can get higher engagement, motivation, activation, um, et cetera, from really pushing on this conflict. But every time we do that, it makes the conflict worse. And so that's the, the sort of uh, dwindling spiral of misaligned incentives. And unfortunately, it extends far broader than platforms. Yeah, and I think this is a really compelling response to the, you know, ah, but what about the paternalism argument, right? Like that these interventions that are, you know, designed to promote other values are getting in the way of, there's some sort of like social engineering, they're getting in the way of what people want to do and the free speech of the people. I think it's just this idea that there is no value neutral and that the existing system already promotes uh, certain kinds of behavior and that there's this recursive effect of it, it, you go down a spiral. Um, so I, I, I completely agree with, you know, the idea that there is no neutral um, and that that sort of fear of, uh, you know, encoding values is sort of misplaced because values are already encoded. That's how these platforms work. Um, one thing that I think hampers progress in this area though is sort of a lack of common vocabulary uh we were talking before about the interdisciplinary nature of uh, a lot of this work and i think one of the obstacles is there's all of these sort of technical sounding concepts that sound objective and defined um but they're actually really ambiguous uh we've talked about some of them today and uh, you wrote another great post with your co-authors recently about this in the context of amplification and how it's kind of all the rage this, these days. It's getting invoked in lots of different kinds of legislative models or regulatory models. The idea being that, well, okay, social media platforms maybe shouldn't be responsible for the content that other people post, but they should be responsible for the extent that they amplify that content. Um, that all sounds pretty reasonable. Uh, what's the catch? Why is amplification much more complicated than it appears? Yeah. Well, yeah. So the piece you're referencing is called uh, What Will Ampl Amplification Mean in Court? And it is a, a sort of thought experiment of exactly that. We imagine that there's a court case uh, based on, for example, one of the proposed laws, which includes the word, includes the word amplification. Um, as far as I know, there's no uh, uh, past law anywhere in the world that includes that word, but don't quote me on it. This, this stuff changes real fast. But anyway, it's, it's popular in legal drafting at this point. And so, you know, uh, there's something, there's a court case, right? So someone says, you know, this is defamation or, you know, this causes harm to children or this inspired um, a, a violent crime or, you know, whatever, any of the issues that we might be concerned about in, in moderation. And so now a judge has to decide, okay, did the platform amplify this? You know, the law says amplification. So, okay, is it a fact that uh, this was amplified? And um, our approach to trying to answer this question was to go and talk to a bunch of people, you know, read the laws, talk to the people drafting them, talk to the scholars who have used this word and ask them what they meant. And um, because that's really what it comes down to, right? Like, what, what is the intention of the word? And we found that there were basically three meetings. The first is a counterfactual. So, you know, if the platform had been different, this would not have been distributed as widely. Okay, so the intuition here comes from the sort of chronological feed, right? You know, if we had a cron feed, then, you know, uh, the algorithms wouldn't have shown this to 2 million more people. Um, well, so first of all, in, in, in any particular instance, that may be true, right? But how do, you, how do you determine whether that's true? Well, you need to 
uh, make a claim about something that didn't happen. Okay, well, how does that work? Well, um, in uh, Twitter's case, they kept a small fraction, I think it's 1% of their users on a chronological feed when they introduced the um, algorithmic feed in, um, I think it was 2017. And so they have this sort of control group and they recently did uh, a paper where they uh, studied um, uh, the, you know, the distribution of tweets from left and right wing politicians across seven countries um, and uh, look, computed this thing called the amplification ratio, which was how often did somebody see one of these tweets in the you know, 1% chronological holdout group versus how often do they see if they're on an algorithmic feed. And so that provides a definition of amplification in this counterfactual sense. However, that really only works for Twitter for a couple of reasons. First is that they've already got the control group. You don't have to simulate or imagine the counterfactual. It's right there. Um, the second is that chronological is meaningful for Twitter. It is a platform that is designed around a chronological feed of you know, more or less people you follow. Chronological is less meaningful for other platforms. It's you know, kind of meaningful for Facebook, although there you get into questions of, you know, do we include posts from groups? Do we include posts from crazes? Do we include a notification that um, you know, someone commented on your post? Like all kinds of things happen on Facebook, right? Which of those belong in the feed? But you can, you can kind of say that, okay, the chronological feed is a thing that you could do. But what about YouTube? What about Google News? What about Spotify? These are recommender-driven platforms where a chronological feed makes no sense. It, it would be useless. And so laws stating that you know, they need an option which is, um, you know, uh, does not have an algorithm is sort of like, well, okay, like, yes, you can comply with the letter of, a law, of the law by giving you a chronological feed of every video on YouTube. But like, really? Like, do, is that what we want? So anyway, this, this, this counterfactual problem uh, definition runs into the problem that um, the counterfactual is often poorly defined. And even if it is well-defined, um, you don't necessarily ever get to know it. You have to get into simulating it. And even worse, you have to simulate what user behavior will be because user behavior changes when platforms change. And we know that you can get viral cascades, amplification, if you like, just from people sharing things with no algorithm at all, if you look at sort of cascades through WhatsApp and Telegram and so forth. So you're now in a situation where to make a legal judgment, you have to make a very, do a very com complicated counterfactual situation of the algorithm user system and trust that you can know the results well enough to make a binding uh, uh, legal argument about speech rights. And I don't think we can. I don't think that's reasonable. So that's sort of one definition of amplification. Um, that people are getting at. And I think when you stare at it hard, it kind of falls apart. The next definition that people talk about is um, they, there's, there's sort of a sleight of hand. Nobody really says this directly, but uh, when you read definitions carefully, there's a group of them that collapse to distributed, right? Amplify cannot be dis distinguished from distributed. And so um, one of these definitions is something like, um, you know, uh, shows the user um, extreme content at the expense of more moderate content. Okay, so that sounds like it makes sense. The problem is that sentence is trivially true for any type of content. You know, I show the user X content at the expense of non-X content. For any category X, that is a true statement. Uh, because attention is zero-sum, there's only so many links on the page of results. 
there's only so many minutes a day that somebody interacts with a recommender system. So choosing anything is always at the expense of everything else. So there's um, three or four laws which are sort of written in this at the expense of way, and it sounds great, but it actually doesn't mean anything more than mere distribution. And as soon as you define amplification as distribution, then what you are doing is you are writing classical illegal speech laws. You're just saying, ah, you know, you can't talk about this. This is illegal. And, you know, we all know the challenges there, right? You know, and, you know, even, even news organizations acknowledge that they, um, quote, amplify something by covering it, right? We, um, and, you know, the libraries are full of books that are full of hate speech, right? You, you, you want to be very careful about what you make illegal to say. And in particular, this definition of amplification doesn't distinguish between algorithmic and human editorial decisions, right? So if I am Apple News and I tune my news algorithm to show you more news about, I don't know, the war in Ukraine, and um, turns out there's a bunch of hate speech in some of the um, articles on Ukraine, uh, then, uh, you know, am I liable uh, as an editor? And, and why wouldn't this apply to, to journalism organizations as well? So this set of definitions of, ampl of amplification um, collapse pretty quickly to just, we want to make a certain type of speech illegal. And then the final definition that we see is uh, the, I, there's something about agency, right? I didn't ask to see this. I saw it anyway. And uh, I, so I think there's, there's sort of a very interesting part and a sort of less sensible part. The, the interesting part is the observation that we need better control over what recommendation systems show us. Um, and there's a lot of work going into, well, how do you build controls for a recommender system, right? Um, people are talking about like, um, you can already select topics that you want to follow in many of them. People are talking about like, you know, diversity sliders or like left-right politics sliders or uh, conversational recommenders. Maybe I should be able to tell a system as if it's my personal assessment. Oh, you know, please, please, please follow this topic and tell me if there are any developments of this kind, right? So I think that that is very sensible. And the part of it that starts to be a little weirder is in a legal sense, so in our hypothetical court case, you could, be, you could get into a situation where you're trying to decide whether the user actually asked for something or not. So let's say someone searches for politics on Spotify and ends up with a podcast that um, discusses uh, popular conspiracy theories about politicians. So did they want to see that podcast? maybe they were interested in the state of politics and the conspiracy theories in it, right? Like it becomes this really weird sort of trying to get into the head of the user to know what they wanted at any particular point. Even more challenging is the fact that uh, part of the value of recommender systems is that they show you things that you didn't ask for. That's the idea. You're delegating curatorial responsibility. So try to think of Google News, right? If Google News only showed you things that you asked for, it wouldn't be a news system. That's not what news is. The whole point of a news recommender is to prevent you from having to search for the news explicitly. All right, we're going to leave it there. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a pleasure. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and on our separate Arbiters of Truth feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. 
This podcast was edited by the good people at Goat Rodeo, and our audio engineer this episode was Goat Rodeo's Kara Schillen. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>